2: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 102nd episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is a field guide to behavioral science. I'm joined by Sirach Khan and Laurel Newman, who co-edited and contributed to Building Behavioral Science in an Organization. The publisher is Action Design Press in conjunction with the University of Pennsylvania. Zarak Khan is a senior behavioral researcher at the Center for Advanced Hindsight at Duke University. He also teaches at the University of Pennsylvania and is a board member of Action Design Network. Laurel Newman is a behavioral scientist at Edward Jones and a former college professor at Fontbonne University in St. Louis. Welcome to the show, both of you.
0: Thanks for having us.
2: Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So uh, what's this book about in a nutshell?
0: This book is sort of a culmination of a bunch of different uh, experts putting their heads together about how you actually use behavioral science in the field. Um, We realized that you know we knew a bunch of folks in uh, a bunch of different areas that use behavioral science. They all have sort of different spins on it. And so we wanted to kind of pull that all together in one place and talk about not just sort of the concepts of behavioral science biases and heuristics that sort of thing but once you're kind of bought in and you're trying to actually build you know a a team or a function within your organization to implement this stuff how do you go about doing that and that's what the book is
2: about okay and and laurel maybe you can help us level set what in the world is behavioral science for anyone who doesn't know
1: well behavioral science is kind of a general umbrella term so it includes lots of different areas like um, economics psychology um, Some people think about behavioral science as being mostly kind of psychological biases and heuristics and things like nudge principles. Um, So nudges are like, how do we design an environment in a way that will increase the probability that people will do the behavior we want? And often nudges are designed outside of people's awareness. So um, people don't often even realize that they're being nudged. Um, So that's, you know, when a lot of people think about behavioral science, they think about these kind of smaller nudges and, um, you know, anticipating and dealing with cognitive biases. Um, Zarak and I, I think, take a broader approach to thinking of it in terms of kind of, you know, um, psychology, sociology, anything that might help us understand why people do what they do and how we can uh, make changes to their environment to increase the probability that they'll do the things that are in, you know, hopefully their own best interest.
2: Sure. And, and Zaraka is, of course, at uh, the Institute for Hindsight, because foresight is not necessarily one of the strengths of human nature. Exactly
0: yes. right. We all <laughs> suffer from this hindsight bias, so why not just get out in front of it?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So I was curious, in the introduction, it seems like, uh, if I remember right, there was a statement that behavioral science seemed to kind of take off as a discipline, uh, roughly speaking, maybe 2013. Uh, kind of begs the question, why then, and, and then also what's fueling the growth?
0: Well, it's been, uh, you know, a, a part of academia for a very long time, right? So, I mean, the, the fields that Laurel mentioned um, are, are foundational, right? So, there's been, you know, extensive research into human behavior for, for, you know, a very, very long time. The jump to sort of application um, has, I think, kind of taken, it's happened in sort of fits and starts in different places. I think, you know, the, the 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 date that that we have there, or sort of, you know, early early two thousands, is probably when it started kind of moving into government, which is sort of where they first kind of started like nut, nudges, right? This is where this term became popular, right? So famous from yep. the book um, by, by Richard by Thaler, Thaler and Cass Sunstein. Yep, and then Thaler was one of the sort of original um, uh, advisors to the Behavioral Insights Team in the UK, which was originally called the Nudge Unit. Uh, and now there are all these nudge units that have, have sort of sprung up all around, uh, around the world, uh, including, you know, we have, we have one uh, here in the US uh, that has sort of a different name. But um, so, so that was the first sort of step. And then, um, you know, companies and industry caught on and have started to try to, you know, implement it or in- integrate it or introduce it to the work that they do as well. There are some places that started probably earlier and would say that they've been doing it for longer, like marketing. Um, and then there are some where it's sort of, you know, a little bit newer, uh, or at least the application is a little bit more novel.
2: Okay. Yeah. No, I, for instance, wrote uh, a book called Emotionomics, published about 2007. And, um, you yeah, know, a lot of it was really in the marketing realm and having to do with uh, looking at behavioral economics principles and uh, acknowledging that obviously we're not making re- not making decisions and not having reactions to, for instance, advertising based on, Cognitive, rational, utilitarian factors alone, or indeed far from it. Mm-hmm. Um, Laurel, in your case, you you mentioned that HR, uh, human resources, is a lagging application. I say that because I think the percentage was eight percent of the work in this field seems to have been in the HR. Why do you think HR is a, a lagging application? If indeed that's true.
1: Well. I think it has to do with the fact that HR, you know, in a lot of cases, um, people hire behavioral scientists because in the end, they want to impact client behavior because client behavior is what impacts revenue for the company, first and foremost. So if they have a limited number of behavioral scientists or a limited budget for behavioral science, they're often going to put people on things like product or marketing that they think will have a really fast and direct impact on client behavior. Um, HR is more of a long game. Um, You know, it's investing in behavioral science that can help test things and improve things for internal employees often, which can help with retention and productivity and innovation and, you know, things like that that wrap back around in time and lead the company to be more successful, but that don't have quite the same sort of straight line to an outcome like sales that you could see um, if you invest in other areas.
2: Okay, so the ROI is not as readily apparent to executives, for instance.
1: That's my opinion, yeah.
2: Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. We're all here about what's your opinions, <laughs> what's your feelings. Um, that's all within bounds and yeah. legit. Um, do you think the executives are – where do you think they're at in terms of understanding the importance of behavioral science? This is still for you, Laurel. We're going to jump over to innovation and Zirok here in a bit.
1: Yeah, I think, I think there's just a lot of variability. I mean, there's sort of a classic way of thinking about employee motivation that's focused heavily on extrinsic rewards, things like compensation and bonuses and um, even benefits and things like that. Um, And, you know, those things are often easier and cleaner to design and test the effects of. Things like investing in intrinsic motivation can be, a little more nuanced, you know, and a little bit harder to, um, you know, you have to make more structural changes sometimes to the workplace. Um, and you, and you have to have often lagging measures. This is something that I think, you know, I've seen business people, Don't love in general is the idea of lagging measures. You know, let's test this and tell me in two or three weeks if it works, or tell me tomorrow if it works. The idea of changing employee culture and changing employee motivation, retention, those things take a while for us to assess in terms of, you know, in research, we call it dependent variable measurement. Um, So uh, that's another reason why I think there's often a preference for uh, making changes that we can kind of assess the impact of uh, right away. But I think there are a lot of companies that realize, you know, you can really attract and retain top-notch talent if you're willing to invest in these things, and if you're willing to offer employees an environment that they really look forward to coming to, and where they feel like they can reach their full potential and they're supported. And um, you know, there's just sort of an energy to businesses like that. And I think increasingly, um, businesses who are of that mindset are starting to invest in those kind of longer-term um, approaches.
2: So do you think that that percentage of it you know, being 8% in a lagging application, do you, do you see good odds that that's going to uh, materially look different in, say, five years from now? And I say that in part because obviously we're speaking in the context of the Great Resignation. And we're speaking in the context of, you know, even more almost desperate, you know, a war for talent Mm -hmm. and making sure it doesn't go elsewhere in retention. So I I know it's the crystal ball, but I'm curious what you might think.
1: Yeah. I mean, you took the words right out of my mouth with the great resignation. I think companies have to, you know, they have to start thinking differently about how do we understand our employees more as kind of rounded human beings and how do we create environments that meet a, a more like a broader set of human needs so that people can really, um, you know, there's a lot of research on the importance of psychological safety and people being able to kind of be who they are at work and things like that. Um, that's really important. But what we're talking about here is is beyond that, it's really creating environments that kind of um, motivate and acknowledge and recognize and support the types of um, behaviors and outcomes that are going to be beneficial for the, for the company, but also that are going to be meaningful for the individual person. Um, so I think that there will be definitely an increase in um, attention to behavioral science in HR and employee space. Um, And I think it'll be not just designing environments that are more, um, you know, that make employees happier, but also thinking more about what are the kinds of deeper psychological needs that employees have and how can we address those needs so that people really feel bought in and connected to the workplace.
2: No, no, I, I love that answer. I, I think that's really an important uh, initiative that needs to be taking place. Um, you'd also mentioned, and we're going to jump to sirak here after just one more question. Um, you had mentioned some behavioral economic principles that you thought were applicable to employee culture and HR. Um, and I, I, I was very much taken by that because I've always considered my work on the importance of emotion in business to be tied into behavioral economics as a fellow traveler. So you mentioned loss aversion, uh, social proof, ego depletion. Uh, I'm hoping you can both speak to those. And then I was wondering about another one, which was inequality aversion. I have to think that uh, the regular employee looking at, for instance, the compensation of executives uh, might find that pertinent. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, So I'll, I'll, Talk here for a moment, and then let Zarak uh, speak. You know, um, speak his mind. Uh, loss aversion is an important one. You know, for anyone who isn't familiar with that, it's the idea that when people receive something, it's you know, it feels good, but when they lose something of equal value, it feels much worse. Than the good that they get from receiving it. So, this is something that we keep in mind when we begin new programs or new rewards or things like that. Um, you know, even things like recognition. If you give people something and then you decide, hey, we're not really getting the ROI or the impact that we wanted out of that, and then you pull it back, um, it usually leads to a lot of blowback. Um, people feel kind of you know, offended and hurt and they don't understand why, you know, from their perspective, often it's it's been making them feel good. So why would you remove it? Um, So that's just sort of a cautionary tale about tinkering with things and saying, well, let's try this. And if it doesn't work, we'll just change it. Um, Sometimes that's a good you know, sometimes that's a good thing to do. But when it comes to actually giving people things, um, it's not not often an easy thing to take them away.
2: Um sure makes makes sense.
1: Yeah. What what was another one that you mentioned?
2: Oh, well, you uh, social proof, mm-hmm. ego depletion and then I mm-hmm. brought up the specter of inequality aversion.
1: Mhm. do you want to talk about one of those? Yeah, I mean I think the thing before getting into
0: specific of one of those those three, I mean, you know, in your sort of introduction to behavioral science, Laurel, right? You talked about they're kind of like these different Different fields or, or academic disciplines that we bring to bear on on the problems that we're trying to solve. And oftentimes those kind of happen at two levels um, of, of maybe levels of granularity or specificity, right? So sometimes there is like a very specific behavior or action that we want an employee to, to do or that we think is sort of, you know, beneficial for for them or for the organization. And so an example of this, right, might be we do this, uh, we think about this a lot in the work that we do with um, my team uh, at Duke, is um, enrollment in benefits, right? So the biggest uh, change to, you know, long-term savings in the U.S., retirement savings, um, has nothing to do with interest rates, has nothing to do with, you know, um, compelling marketing or anything like that. It basically is that Companies switched from an uh, opt-in to an opt-out of their 401k programs or their, their savings programs. And so you see a dramatic, you know, shift in behavior or or in this outcome um, because of a of a very, very small design change on on a form or an onboarding process, right? So that's kind of one level where we think about things like nudges and friction and defaults and that sort of thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then there is this sort of higher level, and Laurel spent, um, you know, spent time kind of describing this, where it's more around like, okay, well, defaulting somebody into a 401k, may you know, has sort of limited effect or impact on their, you know, on the great resignation, um, right? Uh, like, this is something where we think at a higher level, like, well, why, why are you here in the first place, you know? And when you ask people, you know, who, who have either either jobs that they liked where you say hey like what what was your favorite thing about that job or it seems like you really didn't like that job like why did you stay there so long the answers tend to be kind of similar right where it's like well i really like the people i worked with i really like my boss the work was really meaningful whatever you know so there's always something that kind of keeps people there and it's very rarely you know exclusively just sort of an extrinsic reason like well you know i got paid this money to do it right
2: yeah uh, and it's yep. less and less
0: the case now right with the sort of um, departure of things like uh, pensions, right, where you're sort of paying into this and you're kind of getting this uh, uh, defined payout over time. Mm-hmm. So I think when you think about sort of biases or, or behavioral principles, right, we kind of think of those two levels of of um, specificity, right? Some that are very, very specific on like discrete behaviors that we think uh, employees might be doing or, or that we think they should do, like signing up for benefits, And then the other is sort of like at a high level, what are kind of, you know, concepts that we sort of want to bake into just the way that we have set up our organization and the way that we do our work.
2: Okay. No, I like that a lot. So um, staying with you, Sirach, switching over to innovation, I was intrigued at one point you state the difference between looking innovative, such as hackathons, (laughs) feeling innovative. You invited a speaker, for instance and actually being innovative. So I, I think that begs a, an opportunity for you to elaborate on that a bit.
0: Love the opportunity, Dan. Um, yeah, this was like very helpful for me in uh, <laughs> in in sort of, you know, kind of developing an understanding of, yeah, as like an innovation professional, like what the heck am I supposed to even be spending my time doing? Um, because, you know, and, and this was like, you know, it's basically like this, is, I'm spending most of my time thinking about this. So imagine somebody who only spends, you know, an hour a month thinking about it. Right. So there's a lot of like uh, a need for clarity around this, this stuff, if you're building out an innovation strategy. And so the, you know, one of the things that I've done and, and helped other organizations do is let's map out all the things that you do that you think are innovation activities. Right. And, um, I I sort of developed this by talking with other friends and and folks who are in similar roles. And, um, you know, within a week, they would come back and say, man, like I was able to kind of map this whole thing out with my organization too and sort of see which pieces should be working together more closely, which ones are like things that should be funded by a totally different part of the organization. So to, to sort of build this out a little bit, you know, there are activities that you know that an organization might do to demonstrate to um, to the market, to you know their competitors or to their clients, um, that they are an innovative company, and that doesn't necessarily mean that it's actually producing anything. A, a sort of a, a meaning uh, to to the organization itself, right? You're just sort of showing yeah, it's people. A, it's, a do-
2: it's a dog and pony show. Maybe. Yeah, exactly,
0: yeah. right? We put on this big event and we invite a bunch of speakers and it's like, wow, that must be a cool you know, organization. They're doing <laughs> all this great stuff. Okay, but like, does that translate into, you know, an improvement of your product or better services, whatever? Like, you know, probably not, you know, if that's the only thing you're doing. The second category of sort of feeling innovative, it's similar to the first one, but it's turned inwards, right? So you're saying, oh, we've got like a ping pong table and, you know, in the rec room or cafeteria or whatever, like, this is a cool place to work, you know? Um, And so, you know, this is basically convincing the people that work there that, hey, we're doing cool stuff. This is a fun environment. We must be like an innovative organization. And there's nothing wrong with either of those things. Um, but the third category is what I chose to sort of focus on in this chapter in the book of being innovative, where, um, in, and it's I used to kind of visualize this as like a tree in a garden. <laughs> and so the garden is sort of like, there's like ground cover, right? And that's sort of like feeling innovative, looking innovative. It's like, well, there's lots of flowers and sort of pretty things there. But like, what you're really hoping for is this like sturdy tree and the tree is like, you know, that we're being innovative here and there's different branches to this, right? Of sort of, are we, you know, generating ideas and there's lots of activities that you can think of to sort of generate ideas. Are we assessing them in some way? Are we testing them and scaling them, you know? So um, that's sort of what the, the, the focus where if you're being innovative, it makes it much easier to look and feel innovative. If you're only looking and feeling innovative and you're not actually being innovative, it starts to sort of not feel very genuine.
2: Sure. Well, you might appreciate the fact that my my father was in charge of 3M printed post-it notes. Oh. And uh, sure. innovation was very central to 3M and you were supposed to devote, I think it was as much as 20% of your time, to actually generating ideas. So lo and behold, much later in my career, I ended up being the director of executive communications for a Fortune 200 company. One of my charges was the annual report. I laid aside a two-page spread for new innovations in our $6 billion revenue company. I had to pull the section. There was nothing worth reporting on.
1: <laughs> Could fit
0: it on a post-it note.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was going to say, maybe they maybe gave you all that Maybe even more so if I let the post-it note
2: blank. <laughs> yeah, but, um,
1: <laughs>
2: so, yeah. So uh, there was another thing in, in your chapter, Sirach, I wanted to go to, because I think it's, it's germane to this show and its name, but also just to what you were arguing for, which is that innovative initiatives involve thoughts, emotions, and relationships because i'm trying to get at here in part the importance if you're going to make something happen you're going to have to get buy-in which is the relationships part but i'm hoping you can speak to emotions as well
0: yeah absolutely i mean all of these things are relevant and it's this again kind of to echo this uh theme that's come up a couple times already of there are sort of different levels of operating within you know behavioral science or, or things that we might use in trying to solve these problems or, or create a behavioral science function, you're not going to be able to just kind of nudge people into creating transformational innovations, right? And so um, you have to think about, well, is there some, you know, or is our incentive structure set up in a way that actually facilitates this or in a way that is detrimental to these efforts? And so, you know, the, the classic example here is Clay Christensen's work in with disruptive innovation, right, where it doesn't really matter if, you know, you can have the right mindsets, you can have the right, everyone likes each other, you can have great relationships, but if your organization is set up in a way where, you know, if the success of this new innovation means sort of the the death or just to the detriment of your existing business. Well, it's going to get killed, you know, Um, even if everyone's excited about it and everyone likes each other. Like, so, so you have to be a little bit more holistic and kind of thinking about this as a system and how it interacts with the other parts of the organization beyond just sort of, you know, nudges and behavioral principles here. So, um, so you have to think about, okay, well, how are people, um, you know, the relationships they have with each other. But, you know, to your your point or your question about emotions, right, like, well, if the success of this feels like that's going to make somebody else feel as though they are failing and you need that person's buy-in to, you know, maintain this initiative, well, you have to be pretty thoughtful then about how you frame the work. So it's it sort of just kind of prompts you to be more thoughtful in general about how you're sort of setting up the process, but also the people that are involved and how you're going to have to interact with all of them.
2: Okay. And, and Laurel, on that that same theme, because, I I mean, surely in your work at, at, uh, you know, um, Edward Jones, I mean, you're in effect an in-house consultant and you've got to build coalitions and buy-in as well. Did you have something more you wanted to say on this front?
1: Well, not specifically about Edward Jones. I just was going to say – Kind of to to Zarak's point, I really liked in the chapter, Zarok, where you talk about the difference between incremental um, innovation, which is kind of small, gradual changes, which are really part of just running any business as you're always improving things, versus adjacent innovations, versus transformational innovations. And what you're talking about there, I think, are transformational innovations. When a company realizes that something that has previously made them a lot of money and been successful is sort of falling out of fashion for one reason or another. And it's in danger of maybe not being able to continue doing that. It, it You see this a lot with organizations where there's almost a gambling mentality of, you know, how, how do we time this right so that we can kind of ride out the thing that's been working all these years, but not let it go on for so long that we've missed our opportunity to kind of change and develop something new that's going to be appealing to the newer market when this thing just no longer works.
2: Um, yeah, no, can you catch the next wave? I've, yeah. I've read some research suggesting that, you know, something like only 16% of companies mm-hmm. and organizations managed to catch that next wave as opposed to holding on to the last one to the point of death.
1: Right. But I think that one important point, though, is that a, a, an, a reason for having sort of a little innovation group um, separate from the rest of the business is that they're, they're challenged with and rewarded for coming up with these transformational innovations. Because if you leave it up to the people yep. whose career has been, you know, making this other thing work for all these years, it's we're all human, right? I mean, this is part of the deal yep. is that it's really hard to say... You know, it's really hard to say even to yourself, this thing that I built that has worked all these years that has is sort of my pride and identity needs to go away. And it's just not you can't just can't ask people to do that. So that's, I think, a really important reason to have people whose job is devoted to innovation and who you know are not tied to old ways of doing things.
2: You yeah, know, I like that. And I thought that was really one of the important aspects of the book was the candor on this front. Because, I mean, there is language like it's going to be an organ rejection. Uh, You're going to meet with resistance. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's going to be inertia. I mean, all all of those things are are very much true. I remember when I went out as an innovator, a friend of mine said, well, Dan, you're kind of like a missionary. You go out and the cannibals eat you alive. And it's it's true that the Catholic Church will canonize you, but that's 500 years later. And, and in the meantime, you'll have no heirs. Um, <laughs> it's it's hard being an innovator. It just is. One last question before we run out of time. It might be for Zorak, It might be for both of you, uh, there is a point in the book where you mention some well-known behavioral science frameworks. Uh, there's EAST framework, a FOG model, the HOOK model, 3B framework. Uh, I'm throwing out all this terminology. But over time in your work, have there been certain models or just certain steps or key points to keep in mind, checkpoints to to make your, your work work?
0: It's a great question, um, and it's something that actually we, its the very first lesson in the class that I teach at um, at Penn in their MBDS program—is um, about frameworks. And the main point um, is really that, like, the trick is not like knowing every single framework, right? It's sort of like knowing which which is the right one for the situation that you're in. Um, to some extent, this again deals with specificity, right? Is you are you looking for just sort of a general? you know, it's, it's early discovery and you're kind of looking for a general framework or model around behavior, well, you know, that's where something like COM B or 3Bs or FOG model or whatever, right? Like, these are very, very general things where it's just like, okay, what, what's the behavior we're focused on? What are the barriers and are there benefits to this, right? Um, so it doesn't give you the level of specificity that's going to actually, you know, tell you exactly what to do, but it's a starting point. And then there are some that are much more specific, right? So you mentioned like the hook model uh, around habits, right? So, um, you know, once you have sort of identified this is what you're trying to do, well, this might be a relevant framework for kind of thinking through that. And then, you know, once you develop um, fluency with both, you know, the, the actual science, right? Because all these models are, are basically, you know, they're, they're sort of boiled down versions of, of a lot of different um, uh, fields of study. Once you have, like have fluency with the science and with the area of application, like the industry or the you know the problem that you're focusing on, you might end up kind of developing your own framework or your own approach, um, and that's you know uh, uh, another kind of tool in your toolkit
2: no I think that's a that's a very fair answer. So we're going to leave it there. I want to thank both of you, Zirak and Laurel for your time. Uh, this has been episode number 102, a field guide to behavioral science. Uh Sirach Khan and Laurel Newman are the co-editors as well as contributors to building behavioral science in an organization. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can find other episodes by going to New Books Network and typing in Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight and you'll see the other guests and and books that we've covered on the program. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, I couldn't resist one from Steven Pinker, who said, behavioral science is not for sissies. Until next time, take care and be well.